Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Stacey Philbrick Yadav. Stacey is Associate Professor of Political Science and the Chair of the Department at the Hobart and William Smith Colleges. She's the author of a range of different articles pertaining to Yemen. She's published a wonderful book called The Islamists in the State Legitimacy in Institutions in Yemen and Lebanon. and she's done a great deal of work, obviously, pertaining to, to contemporary issues across Yemen. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really happy to be here. It's our pleasure, Stacey. I'm really looking forward to talking through your, your career and what it is that you've been doing. Your work is absolutely fabulous and so very important. So I think there's a lot that, that we've got to discuss today. But as always, I think we need to start with the the early question of, of what got you interested in the Middle East and academia broadly. So um, I, I, whenever I encounter that question, I have the sort of official answer and the less official answer. Okay. And um, so the official answer is super boring. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree in Middle East studies and anthropology. Mm-hmm. I ended up going to Yemen. Um, usually the question is, why did you go to Yemen? And I say, uh, I ended up going to Yemen because it fit my research design. Okay. But more foundationally, um, I had a, uh, a boyfriend in college who was an Israeli spending the summer visiting his grandparents in the U S and he told me that in response to an argument we had about Middle East politics, Mm -hmm. that I had no right to have an opinion if I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Right. And um, I was an undergraduate at Smith College, which is not really um, the kind of place I, I don't know how, if your listeners will know, but it's a women's college okay. where you, you really ought not make that kind of argument to, to most Smith women. Right. Uh, so I, I enrolled in a class and I enrolled in a class that I loved. And yeah. before long, ended up majoring uh, and doing my first degree in Middle East studies and studying abroad in the region and continuing on that path for the rest of my life. Amazing. Oh, that, that's yeah. fantastic. So is there, <laughs> is there an unofficial answer to, to why Yemen, though? Yeah, so there is actually that, too. <laughs> While I was studying abroad as an undergraduate at Ben-Gurion University, yeah. um, I had a Yemeni-Israeli roommate. Okay. And her mom used to send us malawakh dough, the dough for this like yeah. wonderful Yemeni fried bread. And uh, and I wandered around Sana'a, actually, once I ended up starting my field work, I wandered around Sana'a asking people for it by name, not knowing that this was a Judeo-Arabic term. And uh, So a- anyway, right. um, yeah, it, every my professional career really started in these very personal interactions that left me... Um, engaged, I guess, Mm -hmm. is a polite way of describing the first interaction and, um, you know, fascinated and interested and wanting to know more. So um, that's that's the the real story. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I appreciate it. And the the candid honesty there. Uh, Going back to that that first trip to Yemen, then what what are some of your reflections from that time? I really had no idea what to expect. And I think that uh, the academic literature on Yemen, as you know, is small in English. uh, And it was much smaller then. It's actually, I'm glad to be part of a growing group of Mm -hmm. scholars working on Yemen. But in the kind of 2000, 2001, it was a pretty small group. Um, Not a lot. And it uh, it wasn't an entirely accessible literature. 
by which I mean, for example, I have tremendous respect for scholars like Paul Dresch, for example. Mm -hmm. But when I read his history of modern Yemen, when I was getting ready to go to Yemen for the first time, I felt like I was on the outside of an inside joke. Right. Not in a, I, and I actually honestly sometimes still feel that way, although every time I return to that book, I understand more of it. I still am not sure I will ever, ever follow all of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that this meant that I, I didn't know what to expect. It's also the case that Yemen is, there isn't much of a comprehensive history of Yemen. And I don't think there ever will be. Mm -hmm. There are wonderful and rich ethnographies of specific spaces in Yemen or specific places in Yemen, specific communities, et cetera. Um, you know, my book is not a book that is a comprehensive account of Yemen at all by any means. And it doesn't try to be. But that makes it really hard to prepare yourself for working in Yemen. Yeah, um, sure. And so I definitely felt unprepared. I was also coming at that point from Cairo. My husband taught for three years at the American University in Cairo, uh, and he based there so that I could do my field work in Yemen and in Lebanon mm -hmm. a little bit more easily than if I'd been coming from the U.S. Sure. Um, and so I think one of the the predominant experiences that I had during the primary time of the fieldwork, which was in 2003 to 2006, was of of constant comparison and sometimes jarring experiences of comparison between Cairo and Beirut and Sana'a, right. which are three extraordinarily different environments. And yet that encounter with, with difference also led me to identify important similarities and to think about uh, what wasn't so different, maybe, sure. or what was called by a different name but had some similar structural features in the different contexts. Can you say a little bit about those those moments of jarring sort of contrast? I mean, I suppose, you know, it, it's uh, it's stereotypical to say, and I think my, my first encounter with Yemen was that it was uh, very dry and dusty, Right. right. I, I was in Sana'a yeah. and, and it had us and a lot of people had weapons. And that's a that's just a true statement about the neighborhood where I was living and and what my my day to day was like. And it felt very Wild West to mm -hmm. me. Uh, and of course, over the years, I've come to have a, a different perception. But the jarring first encounter was definitely going from a cosmopolitan buzzing city like Cairo of what, at least 17 million people, depending on how you're yeah. counting, uh, to this place in the mountains that was much, much smaller and much more remote. And I had a hard time with that at the beginning. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. And then Beirut is somewhere in between the two then? Beirut is, I have a very difficult time uh, speaking dispassionately about Beirut. Beirut has been right. a place of great enjoyment for me, but also a place of some personal challenge, if not trauma, sure. mm -hmm. um, in, in 2005. And I, I remember it through that lens, unfortunately. So I have a hard right. time sort of remembering what Beirut was like for the first time. I will say the first time I went there, I was recovering from a broken leg. Right. And I was coming from Cairo and I was super grateful for the wonderful sidewalks in Beirut and the fact that I could walk and do some of the kind of rehab that yeah. I needed to be doing that was fundamentally impossible in, <laughs> in Cairo's crowded urban environment. Sure. Well, that, I guess, is, is definitely a positive thing to reflect on. Yeah. Um, Stacy, going back to that time, then this is this is during your Ph.D. study. Is that right? 
Yes, correct. Where did you do that? Uh, I was at the University of Pennsylvania in the political science department, and I chose that department. So I was coming from a background in Middle East studies and Mm -hmm. anthropology, and uh, neither of which were an organic fit with political science. I kind of applied to graduate programs in all three, in anthro and Middle East studies and in political science, and I wasn't sure where I fit. I felt that I was too interested in politics for an anthro department. I'm not sure if that was an accurate perception of what graduate work in anthropology would have been. But at the time, that was my feeling. Um, I was at least too interested in in institutions, I guess, maybe. Right, okay. Political institutions for an anthro department. And um, I wasn't sure that Middle East studies actually would lead to a, a good set of job prospects. Yeah. So part of the drive to political science was actually just knowing that if I decided I didn't want to be a professor, there would be job options. Mm -hmm. And then it became a question of finding a political science department where I could be a proto-anthropologist. And so in that sense, Penn was a great fit. And I didn't actually end up having a Middle East studies person as my dissertation chair, though both Ian Lustig and Bob Vitalis are there. I worked with Ann Norton who's a political theorist, but mm-hmm. interested in issues of Muslim political thought. And she gave me the kind of methodological license to do the work in the way that I wanted to do. Sure. That, that's interesting hearing you say that and, and flagging up that sort of struggle to locate yourself. I wonder, as, as someone who does some really fascinating stuff that, that wouldn't traditionally be considered political science, do you find yourself um, better located, better grounded now, or do you still think that you're you're maybe caught in the middle of these these different disciplinary borders? So it's a great question, and really recently, uh, a colleague of mine pointed out that my book's Library of Congress call number is begins with JC, which is political theory. Right, and I don't I don't think of the book as a work of political theory by any stretch, but I understand why it doesn't fit with some more conventional approaches to comparative politics. Mm-hmm. The folk, I think actually it does fit better today and that speaks less to changes in me and the way that I work and more in changes that are happening at the level of the field or at the level of the discipline, yeah. the growth of interpretive methods, um, eternally grateful to scholars like Lisa Wadeen for creating space for this type of work and yeah. she was on my committee. Okay. We actually overlapped in Yemen brief, very briefly on my first field trip. So um, I think, you know, there's a language, and in fact, you know, that wonderful book on designing interpretive research by Schwartz, Shea, and Yano, uh, that actually has like a translation chapter that says, this is how, if you are a post-positivist, you can talk about your work with positivist scholars. Mm -hmm. This is how you can navigate an institutional review board and a conversation about research ethics with, you know, as someone who is not a positivist, talking to people who have certain specific expectations about what data transparency and, um, you know, safety practices are appropriate, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So that's, um, those are new resources that developed after I was a graduate student for the most part. And I'm really grateful for them and able to incorporate them in my teaching. I'm also in a really heterodox department where I teach and have never had to justify approaching the discipline in the way that I do. Okay. That's good to know. Um, I I think that the personally some of the most interesting stuff that's being done in in the area of, of Middle East studies broadly takes place at these sort of disciplinary borderlands if you will between political theory between anthropology political science political geography um, sociology whatever it may be that's where for me at least 
some of the really interesting stuff is being done and and that's that's where i i thoroughly enjoy the work that that you've been doing because you're you're provoking the reader to think not only about the empirical positivist issues but the broader set of theoretical ontological epistemological claims that are going on in the world more broadly so so i i really value that that sort of location at the disciplinary borderlands, if you will. Thank you. And I think if I put on my my kind of like department chair, university administrator hat for a second, I will sure. say that, that, you know, the National Science Foundation collects data on this that shows us that women and people of color disproportionately are attracted to graduate degree programs that are interdisciplinary. So, uh, you know, when we look for where these scholars are locating themselves, people who might be able to represent um, more heterodox voices or positionalities in the field who might do more like, uh, you know, women are more heavily represented among interpretive scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are lots of interesting reasons for that, you know, but I, I think at a discipline wide level, we actually should start relaxing what we consider the discipline. Right. Sure. And, and not uh, and I say that at the same time that I'm involved with like uh, you know, the project on Middle East political science yeah. and some of these initiatives that are framed as very disciplinary, but I actually don't think are, are I think they're doing a lot of really important translation work. Yeah. And I don't mean that in the linguistic sense. Sure. I mean that in the sort of epistemological sense. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned POMAPs because obviously we were both at that, that workshop recently in Beirut, which was fascinating. And, um, it, it struck me that it wasn't, it certainly wasn't a traditional political science workshop, that there was a great deal of political theory and anthropology, and it was pushing those disciplinary boundaries. And that's where it was just really stimulating for, for me on a, on a personal note. Although I was really struck because at that particular meeting that you're referencing, I think that Mark Lynch and I were the only Americans in American political scientists in the room, maybe. Right. Um, but there were a lot of Europeans and a lot of Lebanese. Yeah. And uh, that mattered for the content of the discussion. I also go to lots of POMEPS meetings in D.C. Sure. And they are often more conventional political science. And I think that European political science is also in a different place. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where. Uh, and especially IR, um, where a, a lot more post-positivist uh, ideas are have become mainstream or at least mm-hmm. intelligible uh, across epistemological communities. And my experience when I worked in Beirut was certainly that um, the American University of Beirut and to some extent also Lebanese American University people were drawing a lot on French scholarship yeah. um, that, that does some of the same. So the fact that Bourdieu was such a pervasive <laughs> reference in the meeting that, that you and I attended was not, I think, at all accidental no. in terms of with there. No, not at all. But it was incredibly stimulating. But, but if, I, if, I, if I mention Bourdieu in D.C., it's, it really goes down <laughs> in a very different way. I can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, Stacey, let, let's go back to, to the, the immediate period after your, after your thesis. So you defended it. You, you've got the, the doctorate. Then where does life take you? Right. So my husband and I needed to come back from Egypt and look for jobs together. Right. Which, okay. as, as you might imagine, is not yeah. a fun thing. Yep. And we um, we had visiting positions for one year at Mount Holyoke College, where I loved teaching. Mm-hmm. I made some great connections and colleagues. And then very shortly thereafter, 
in a sort of uh, what we sometimes refer to as an academic unicorn scenario. There were two tenure track positions in our two subfield specializations at the small liberal arts college in upstate New York. And I've been there ever since. Amazing. So that unicorn moment is incredibly special and very fortunate then. Yeah, it has been for me. And I think the location, so the college is in Geneva, New York. Mm -hmm. I live in Rochester, uh, in part to be a little closer to an airport and a little closer to a city. Um, But it's certainly been the case that I'm proximate enough to research communities that I've been able to continue the kind of conversations that I want to be having intellectually, uh, despite the seeming isolation of my work environment. Fantastic. And so that that intellectual um, development and progression. Where did where did your your intellectual developments take you after the thesis? Right. So um, there was some cutting room. There was some stuff that fell on the cutting yeah. room floor for the book. Right. Sure. And I think everybody has that scenario. Yeah. Um, but I I actually kind of want to talk about how it came how less of it ended up on the cutting room floor and more of it ended up in the book than I thought would. Okay. uh, Because I think this is a kind of important situation. When I was doing my field work, um, I was there to study Islamist parties and I knew that women in particular were not playing a role or so I thought in, uh, in formal politics, in partisan politics in Yemen. Uh, and that this meant I should be talking to men basically, right? So lots of Yemeni men were telling me, you should talk to my sister, you should talk to my cousin, Mm -hmm. talk to my wife. And I was basically blowing them off. Right. um, Because I wanted to get to the story that interested me and I assumed more or less that they weren't a part of that story. I should say also I was resisting pressure from my department, not my committee, but other people in my department Mm -hmm. who thought I should be doing a project on gender because I'm a woman. Right. And okay. I, I thought that was nonsense. Right. Yeah. So so part of it was my own personal rejection of the way people were trying to position me in the field. And part of it was a, a resistance to to things that I thought might distract me from the story that I wanted to tell. Sure. And I was really misguided. Right. Right. So uh, Dr. Mohammed Abdul Malik Mutawakal, um, who was assassinated in 2014 and was a tremendously important uh, mentor and friend to Mm me. At this point, I didn't know him super, super well, but he invited me to his home for a Friday lunch to meet his daughters and talk with them. And um, you may recognize the name because some of his daughters have gone on to become pretty well known in international circles. But at the time, uh, that was not yet the case. And um, I went, I said I would go. Mm-hmm. And I thought of it as a social occasion. Sure. I decided to go because Sana'a was kind of lonely for me at that point. And Fridays are not a productive research day for yep. the most part. Of course. And Thursday night he called and said he was going to Cairo um, and that he wouldn't be at lunch, but I should still come. So I went and I didn't bring a notebook, which was in some ways an active hubris. But I got there and they were these amazing women who had stories about why they weren't involved in partisan politics that were absolutely instrumental to me on better understanding what was going on with the parties that I was studying. So this was a a rather painful and embarrassing object lesson for me. And I went to go, I excused myself to go to the bathroom after about two hours of learning about their dissertations and talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. And he was in the hallway and he said, I said, I thought you were going to Cairo. And he said, you needed to learn this on your own. Right. 
And I was stopped in my tracks and, you know, have, have really reflected on that experience so often since then. So more stuff about women made it into the book than would have without his excellent intervention. But there was also a whole bunch of other stuff that didn't. And, and so I, my first step after arriving in the new position was to focus on getting that stuff out Mm -hmm. in article form. Sure. Uh, I did what we like to call a longitudinal ethnographic project with Janine Clark, who approached me and said, I interviewed all these women in the 90s about what they were doing, and I want to know what they're doing now. And so I went back to Yemen, uh, and I followed up with the same people that she had spoken with 10 years earlier to find out what was changing and and how they were navigating the the closing political space in Yemen. Um, And that's probably my favorite article that I've ever written. Um, it's super long. They gave us pretty much no word limit and let us just oh, go to amazing. town. Well, I'll I'll make sure to tweet a link to this article uh, so so people can delve into it and and digest it in their own time. But uh, yeah, that that sounds wonderful. No word limits for articles. It's, yeah, right. The days so have I did, changed. I I did some more follow up field work. Um, I had a a brief fellowship at the Harvard. Um, Academy for International and Area Studies that mm-hmm. let me go back to Yemen and back to Lebanon to have to update the dissertation, basically, sure. uh, and then put out the book. And then after 2011, of course, things took uh, another turn. Yeah. Right. Uh, so most of most of those articles, a bunch of them, came out all at once in 2010. Um, and then uh, and then as I was completing the book manuscript, things were changing tremendously on the ground. And I became interested in what I saw as some sh- some shifting alliances, but I hesitate to call them that. That sounds too formal. Shifting relationships and emergent solidarities between activists mm-hmm. and specifically between activists who were not well represented through partisan institutions. So I don't want to necessarily call them independents. They weren't all independent. Some were members of parties, but finding it hard to advance in the kind of gerontocracy of their parties. Right, um, yeah. And I was fascinated by that and spent a lot of time uh, talking with youth activists, not in Yemen, um, mostly by that point, um, things were destabilizing and I had small kids. So most of the post-uprising stuff that I've done has been in other parts of the Gulf, other parts of the the MENA region, meeting with activists on the outside. Sure. So... (laughs) Stacey, at this time, there, there's a lot of work that comes out of, of Yemen or comes out on Yemen, I should say, um, from, from scholars who aren't necessarily experts, who haven't spent the time that, that you've spent there. Can you just elaborate on some of, the, some of the most important issues that you think people get wrong about Yemen? Because it seems to me that there's a, there are a few examples of, of states that are prone to, to widespread generalizations that, that don't accurately portray the, the lay of the land. And Yemen seems to be one of them. So this is a place where I think we have tools for thinking conceptually about stuff in our own societies that we are not bringing with us when we study Yemen. Uh, And particularly the concept of intersectionality is supremely important because Mm -hmm. the way that people describe the politics of identity and the politics of identification as a dynamic process in Yemen is really flattening and it flattens people into single identity groups. And that is not how I have experienced people navigating their plural identities. Sure. 
uh, on a day-to-day basis. And so, uh, and, and I'm particularly troubled when I see institutions doing that. And so I've written a bit about this in the context of the national dialogue mm-hmm. and the transitional institutions that, for example, asked women to be there as women. As right. if women are not also yeah, Southerners, of course. also of particular family backgrounds, sure. tribal backgrounds, whatever. What, as if they don't have ideology, yeah. you know? Um, and so I think the institutions that do that fail Yemenis. Mm-hmm. So I would like to say it that way. I would like to say that the institutions fail Yemenis rather than Yemenis fail to do the things yeah. that are prescribed for them. Sure. Uh, I think that's an important corrective. And I think as scholars, we have ways of thinking about identity that we should be deploying when we are asking questions about Yemen. Yeah. I mean, why do you think that is? Why do you think, given that we have these tools, why aren't they being applied to, to Yemen? I think that the people who I see using those tools are people who have done extensive fieldwork in Yemen, usually, yeah. obviously, at an earlier time. Sure. It's, people aren't doing extensive fieldwork right now. Yeah. Um, but... But you even see it with some journalists, like journalists who have continued to report from Yemen usually do better on this than journalists who haven't. Um, And and I so for me, that's it. And an increasing I I can say this, I guess, as like a manuscript reviewer for a lot of manuscripts on Yemen. Most of the stuff that's coming across my desk right now um, is not field based and it can't be. And I'm not critical of that, but it does shape. The way, well, okay, I'm not not critical of that, I, um, yeah. but I'm mindful of that reality, and it shapes my own scholarship too. So I, I get that people are not able to do field research, but when people never did field research in Yemen, then I see them turning very quickly to these sort of categorical matrices of who fits in what box yeah. that just doesn't correspond to how people live their lives. Sure, yeah, that that makes sense, I guess. Um. Stacey, you, you've touched on on the, the issues of, of fieldwork and some of the challenges that, that emerge from that. And I know that you've you've written on on the challenges of doing fieldwork in, in risky or precarious positions. Can you just tell us a little bit about about what it is that you're trying to do in, in that book chapter? And it, it's in Janine Clark's book, I think. Right. So Janine Clark and, and Francesco Cavatorta... Um, co-edited what I just absolutely love as a a guide to doing a practical guide to doing field research Mm -hmm. in the Middle East and North Africa. It came out in 2018, I think. Uh, And so I have a chapter there on ethnography, but my chapter is really on learning how to learn from mistakes. And it certainly opens with the story that I told you about Dr. Muhammad and his intervention into my hard headedness about gender. Uh, But it, talks about some other mistakes where I published something in a, like in a, a magazine basically in Cairo, an English language magazine about some struggles that journalists in Yemen were encountering. And as they, um, navigated the terrain of takfir, uh, as a regulatory Mm -hmm. mechanism in, in Yemeni political discourse. And I, it was based on interviews that were done on the record, you know? And so I thought I was good. But what it means to be on the record in one context, in the context of a PhD student's dissertation research, and what it means to be on the record for a a magazine that's being published regionally really are two different things. And I didn't appreciate that adequately at the time. So when it was translated into Arabic and republished in Yemen, it actually really 
put some people in a very hard position, potentially could have put them at some real risk. Uh, the people in question handled it with enormous generosity that, sure. uh, that I find not surprising after many years of working with Yemenis. Um, but it was a mistake on my part. And so I talk about how I have responded to that mistake in my ongoing mm-hmm. sort of ethical practices around consent uh, when I'm doing research. And so those are the kind of things where I think, you know, to pretend that we, we knew what we were doing at all times or yeah. that we know what we're doing at all times is dishonest and it doesn't do a service to students. So sure. to people who are preparing to do field work. Um, and so I like to, to think about how I can continue to learn from mistakes. And yeah. I actually, I'm doing it this week. I'm working on a collaborative research project that I, I think we're going to talk about some more, but I've, I've been navigating some mistakes this week. So right. um, we are lifelong learners. We certainly are. And I think that's such an important point that just because you have a, a doctorate or you have tenure or however many years of experience, that doesn't mean that you're immune from making mistakes. Not at all. And we have to learn from those. I think that's so very important. What advice would you give for people who, who want to try and learn from those mistakes then? Given that you, you've articulated this in the book chapter. Right. I mean, how do we do it? I mean, I think you need community. Uh, you need yeah. to build a network of, of scholars. And you th- that network needs to include people you admire, not just because of what they write, but because of how they work. Yeah. And to develop relationships where people will push you on your practices or hold a mirror up when you need it. I think Dr. Mutawakal's intervention was the intervention of a professor. Like what he did for me was not something he did as a Yemeni to an American or however you want to characterize us in that interaction. It was, he was a man who taught people for a living and he taught me. Sure. And I think to develop, I've had the benefit of, I, I don't, particularly love the word mentor, um, but I have had the benefit of some really wonderful relationships with some scholars who are senior to me, who have helped me to navigate those mistakes and to try and re- recover them. And I never would have, I, I, th- I think my relationships with them really originated in watching how they treat people, watching right. how they treat people in the field. Sure. Uh, whether that field is the field of political science, how they operate yeah. as a discussant, for example, uh, or whether that field is the field where we are doing our, our primary yeah. research. Fantastic. I think that's, that's really important. And I, I really like this idea of community. I think that is so very important, be it a, a physical community in one school or, or department or, or university, or a, a sort of a broader community that, that may be maybe uh sort of activated remotely you know and i think you can you can learn and you should be able to learn it it should go without saying from people who don't necessarily share your ontological priors you know as one of my closest colleagues and friends in the field is lisa blades whose work is entirely different from mine in almost every way that you can imagine. But she's asked me some great questions over the years. So sure. we were we were at the Harvard Academy together at the same time and our offices were next to each other. And she went through my manuscripts and just asked questions mm-hmm. and made me explain my work to her in her... Right. I don't want to say in her language or with her ontological priors, but to an 
we get too hermetically sealed in our audiences. So you need people who think in ways that are roughly congruent with yours to ask you some kinds of questions. But I think cross epistemological conversations raise new ethical questions. They raise new uh, questions about how to be in the field and, and that those are really valuable too. Yeah, yeah, that's that's certainly accurate. Uh, Stacy, we've taken up a lot of your time, but if I may ask one final question, and that's that's just a question that you alluded to a minute ago, and you're you're sort of talking about this this new project. Um, given the the challenges of doing fieldwork in Yemen and and indeed on Yemen right now, can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you're doing, how you're trying to circumvent some of these challenges, and Give uh, give our listeners a little bit of a teaser of your future work, because I know that they will be just about as excited as I am to read some of it. Well, I'm happy to talk about this. I'm really excited <laughs> about it. Um, I may have tweeted about it one or 17 times. <laughs> um, but so I am working with two researchers at Sana'a University as part of a team, and we are one of five teams working on the impact that non, non-combatant, non-state actors are having in Yemen through everyday practices of peace building. Amazing. So this is a project that's funded by the Center for Applied Research in Partnership with the Orient, otherwise known as CARPO, mm-hmm. and also through GIZ, which is, I guess, the German equivalent of USAID or DFID. Yeah. Um, and the project really sort of originates from the perspective that the peace negotiations are centering the voices of combatants, but that there are things going on on the ground that have significant implications for how viable any kind of sustainable peace deal will be. Mm -hmm. And that also just sort of in normative terms should be registered by, by negotiators. Um, So we're trying to elaborate what those practices are, um, and what the implications are for post for a post war Yemen, and a lot of those do have to do with the way identity is going to shift. So that sort of ties into my broader ongoing interest. But it's really also consistent with things I've been writing about the fragmentation of the experience of the war, mm-hmm. and so sort of the recognition that this is not one war; it's happening in very different ways in different communities, which therefore have different needs sure. uh, and capacities to respond. And so the work that we've done involves uh, interviews and focus groups with Yemeni women and Yemeni men, although the focus groups are separate, um, in four parts of the country. So in rural and urban areas of Sana'a and in urban Aden and Lahish, uh, the sort of rural periphery outside of Aden. And so we're able to make a lot of different kinds of comparisons Um, And I really wanted to structure it the way that we did because I was suspecting that there were some things, for example, that rural women face in common, whether they are in the north or south, and that are different from what urban women are facing. But what's coming out of the data is really fascinating. Um, You know, I'm not a survey methodologist, and this is not a uh, survey-based project at all. These are qualitative interviews Mm -hmm. and focus groups. Um, but the kinds of things that women are doing and who they're doing it with, yeah. the kind of sources of support that they're drawing on in their local communities and the kind of challenges that they're facing are so different from place to place. Sure. We, I struggled yeah. to actually articulate that the first draft is ready. I think it's going to be published in December. Amazing. Inshallah. <laughs> uh, but I struggled to really articulate what they actually shared in common. 
And the right. main thing that they shared in common was economic precarity and increased insecurity outside of the home are making it hard for women, but also drawing them to take on new income generating work. Right. That's about it. After okay. that, it's pretty much differences in, in all of these different localities. Sure. Like peace builders really need to take account of that. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I don't see that happening. So a, I like the project, but B, I love uh, the fact that I'm able to work with two Yemeni scholars on this yeah. um, and to to promote their work and their research. Um, I got to go to Ethiopia to meet with them and plan it out, Amazing. which was really fun and exciting uh, and a great opportunity to expand my own network with, with new folks. Yes. So. I'd reached the end of the line with how much I was willing to keep talking about Yemen without being in Yemen. And I certainly have not been in Yemen during the war. Um, But this is helping me feel more confident in what I'm able to say and um, really good about doing the work alongside Yemeni partners. Fantastic. It's so very exciting. And I'm really looking forward to, to reading this. Um, the, the first thing coming out of it in December and, and I do hope that that we can get you on again Stacey to talk in more detail about the findings and I mean, it strikes me that, that context is key even within and across states right that what Absolutely. is going to affect one individual uh, in one place is dramatically different to another albeit with that same fundamental concern about um, precarious conditions with a need to to create money and income to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think going back to what I was talking about earlier with regard to the intersectionality piece, you know, we're seeing for sure differences in class in in terms of the type of things that people are doing, um, differences in in people's family situations and how families are responding Mm -hmm. to the work that women are doing. So so many interesting uh, ways that help us round out this category of Yemeni women and what Yemeni women are experiencing as the front line. Yeah providers uh in their communities fantastic well stacy thank you so much for joining us today it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you there's been so much to digest so much to reflect on and i've really appreciated you giving the time today thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure so thank you again stacy and thank you as always for listening until next time